have Professor Gerald Thomas of the Political Science Department with us. Um, his research interests include public policy, and today he's going to talk to us about high-resolution satellite imagery. Okay. Why do I? Uh, were, are you guys in here for a class? Is that what we have going, students? I'm just curious. I didn't expect this many people. <clears throat> Uh, as uh, I was introduced, I teach in the Department of Political Science, and my area of uh, research emphasis is environmental politics, in particular, and public policy. And many of you are probably wondering why an earring-wearing tree hugger is talking about spy satellites. Uh, it's kind of a long story. I had a, a fellowship from NASA to do my PhD at Colorado State University, uh, and there was a, a a requirement in my department is to do environment and space, and I ended up looking at some uh, a concept called environmental security, which brings in uh, the possibility of using military technology, advanced military technology, to do environmental monitoring, for example, or to help out environmental uh, cleanup, which the DOE does to a large degree now. Um, and so I gravitated into this area and realized that there was a lot of activity and published a couple papers. Uh, and held a workshop here that we're going to talk about. So that's how come a tree hugger is interested in satellites. <clears throat> the talk today I'm going to give you is called Assessing the Implications of Commercial Spy Satellites. Uh, in the business we don't use the word spy satellites, but I figured in here it was safe. Uh, they basically don't want people to consider them spy satellites. Uh, the people who, who build these and fly them in the commercial, commercial realm just call them high resolution satellites, but I figured here we'd be okay. <clears throat> Nobody would be upset give you an outline of what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm going to give you a technical and political history of remote sensing policy in this country. It's been sort of a tectonic uh, process to get us where we are that we now allow a commercial high resolution systems. At one point in this country, spy satellites, the satellites that look down from space for national security purposes, were among the most guarded secrets you can imagine. Uh, to the point where in the early 90s, when they started loosening some things up after the Cold War, the Congress discovered that the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, had just built a $1.3 billion building that nobody really knew about. <laughs> and they were like, that's a lot of money. And they also found out they had like a, some, some uh, very large number of billions of dollars of slush funds that nobody knew about. So this area has been protected from public scrutiny for a very long time. Um, but public policy has changed and now it's in the open. So I'm going to give you the technical and political history of remote sensing policy. Uh, I'm going to tell you what the current policy is on commercial satellites. Uh, very uh, uh, complex policy. I'll see if I can boil it down for you. I'm going to tell you about some potential wrinkles in those policies. Some things that have uh, people like me a little bit concerned that haven't been completely ironed out and uh, talk a little bit about the workshop that we had here in November where we discussed the social, economic, and political implications of this technology, or at least of this technology becoming commercial. Uh, just to let you know, I have a few pieces up here uh, that I've written or participated in, including a bibliography, uh, if you want uh, basically what I'm going to say in a, in a less condensed form, and you can sit down and read it. So it's, it's in the pieces here as, uh, as indexed here. <clears throat> Technical history, give you the five minute version here. Basically, we had secret military programs dealing with uh, reconnaissance satellites from about 1958 on. Uh, there are several really good books that describe how in reality, the American space program was a reconnaissance program, spy satellite program from the, almost its very beginning. Uh, that's what they had in mind, believe it or not. Basically, from the early 50s on, when somebody at the RAND Corporation wrote a paper saying this was possible, and we started being denied access to certain areas of the globe that we wanted access to, to a large degree, and I think the arguments are pretty uh, convincing. The spy satellite or the space program in this country started out as a spy satellite program, and they had some pretty pretty amazing results pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, the first program was called Discoverer. This was in the open as it started. M many, probably nobody in this room remembers, perhaps with the exception of one. Uh, between 1958 and 1960, they had Discoverer launches. They were televised. Everybody knew about them. It was a, it was a sort of a hoopla, rah-rah United States kind of thing. Um, Believe it or not, they had 11 failures in a row up until August 1960. So the Discoverer program was a total failure, but it ended in a success, which was uh, the 13th Discoverer mission. And that led into the next set of programs that I can talk about here, which is Corona, Lanyard, and Argonne between 60 and 72. These are military programs, which have now been declassified. And I'll show you some videos regarding those programs. Very successful, uh, amazingly successful. They took. Uh, 
I'll show you some images that will show you how the resolution increased over that time period. It was just phenomenal what they did. Uh, we then went into some other programs. Basically, they evolved into the keyhole program. That's the KH designation. Uh, so we went into uh, Corona takes us from KH1 to KH5, uh, KH4B, excuse me. And then we went into the KH6s, uh, into the KH11s. And there's talk of a new system that nobody knows much about. Uh, but that's the evolution of the classified programs. And I'll give you some more details on that. Unclassified programs began really in the late 60s, but we didn't get a launch until 1972, which was Landsat, the satellites that study the Earth. This, this has been through seven uh, satellites now, which kind of gives you an indication of how important civilian is versus military. They had 11 failures. <laughs> We've only had seven satellites total <laughs> in, since 1972. Uh, basically, they've had over, they had over like 145 launches of Corona in that time period. but. Uh, We've had seven Landsat satellites. The last one went up last summer. It's working very well. Um, one in the series didn't make it to orbit. That was Landsat 6, but I won't go into the detail there. So that's the unclassified program. There's also some other minor programs. Uh, a CSAT satellite was uh, launched in the mid-70s, but it didn't, uh, it didn't last very long. It had some technical problems, but Landsat's been sort of the unclassified civilian program of talk in this country. There's other countries involved, too, with their own birds. Finally, uh, into the very re high resolution commercial satellites, which essentially has been from 97 onward, although we didn't have a working satellite until August of this year. Or wait, did I get that right? September of this year? Yeah, September of this year. Essentially, there's been uh, three launches and, or four, four launch attempts, and three of them failed until we had one up this September. Uh, the first was uh, Early Bird 1, launched in December by Earthwatch right before Christmas. It failed uh, in orbit. Iconos 2 was, there's been three launches. Iconos 2, uh, 1 was launched in April of this year. It didn't make it to orbit. Very low tech problem. The, the, uh, uh, hmm. the cone that protects the satellite as it moves through the atmosphere didn't remove itself from the satellite when it went into orbit. So it was 1,300 pounds too heavy and it just fell into the Pacific Ocean. I mean, these are just, this is real low tech. We're talking explosive bolts that remove it and they couldn't believe there was a problem with that. Um, and then Iconos 2, which was launched in September, which gives us about 0.83 meters, and I'll give you some nice images to show you there. There's some more coming up. Orbview 3 is going to launch mid, uh, sometime this year, which is another company. Um, so that we, are, we are in the era of operational uh, commercial spy satellites right now. Corona, as I said, started in the open as a discoverer in 58. Uh, operating in complete secrecy. After they had a successful mission, they, they totally stopped telling people they were launching them. It became absolutely secret. Uh, you couldn't talk about it in the, in the government without going to jail kind of thing. Um, and that lasted until 72. Uh, really interesting development in the mid-1990s. 800,000 images from Corona have been declassified and are available on the web, by the way. You can order them up if you want to look at them at the site, uh, the USGS site listed here. Um, uh, essentially, they were released for environmental research. Uh, the argument was they were collected over an amazing amounts of the globe. I'm not kidding you. You get on their selection system, you pick any point on the Earth, pretty much, you hit the button, and you're going to get 15 images from 1960 to 1972. Anywhere. I've tried. Okay? I've tried crazy places, the middle of the ocean, and they come up. So, uh, unbelievable amount of imagery. And the people who do environmental research said this is a great resource for detecting change. We have high resolution images of the past. We can say what's going on, desertification or whatever. So really it was Gore and the people in the environmental uh, sort of lobby that within reason that pushed this to ha have happen. Uh, there's also a Corona site uh, available from the CIA, which is where some of my videos come from. And I'm just going to show you some videos here, let the, the egoists at the CIA tell you the story. Um, they're very proud of this program. Uh, CI, just to let you know, Corona was a film return system. Essentially, they sent a camera into space. It photographed large segments of the Earth over a two-week period. Near the end of the program, they could keep them up for a couple weeks. Uh, and then ejected a bucket over somewhere off the coast of Hawaii in the Pacific. They catch the bucket in the midair with an airplane. You'll see a, a, a version of it, and they then developed the film. So you actually have images. You have, you know, film, like, like an image you would get off of a regular camera, which is different than what we have today. And I can talk about that. Let's see if I can get this to work. The Corona program was envisioned to be a series of satellites that would carry cameras to photograph denied areas. 
exhausted of polar orbits by four boosters. The spacecraft will fly at approximate altitudes of 100 nautical miles and take pictures of selected target areas. Okay, I'm just going to walk through these different, I have about five of these, six of these. That's a gold-plated bucket that they drop him out of the out of space from. of Corona, one of, the, one of the funny stories is that a, a capsule was ejected over Brazil and it fell into the rainforest and some of the natives found it and thought it was like some alien from space and just absolutely destroyed the film. They, they tore it into a million pieces. So when the CIA arrived, it was pretty much useless. <laughs> These guys had so much money, it was ridiculous. Yeah, the, the amount of money spent, uh, I, there's a quote, a famous quote by, uh, I believe, Eisenhower, Eisenhower, one of the presidents, might have been Johnson, who said, you know, we spent X amount of dollars on, on uh, uh, spice, on the satellites, basically, and it was worth every single penny and more. Because what they figured out was that what the Russians were telling them about their capabilities weren't true, and we could adjust ourselves to reality rather than to their propaganda about their military capabilities. Here's the last one. 145th and final Corona launch took place on May 25th, 1972. Having achieved its purpose, Corona's existence is now unclassified, and its artifacts have been made available to the Smithsonian Institution, so that others might gain a sense of how far reaching the program's unsung heroes were in their pioneering efforts. The camera and two buckets from Corona's last flight will be part of a primitive exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. Okay, so that's the CIA's version. What I want to show you here is uh, an example of, this is the first usable image from the Discoverer 14 flight. 
It's a runway and parking apron somewhere in Kamchatka. Uh, and here is what they had just seven years later uh, as an increase in resolution. Not only was it just an increase in resolution, they also had uh, the ability, this one lasted for about a day in orbit, and these could last for two weeks, snapping photos of the areas that they wanted to get. The idea is we go from this grainy, I don't know what the resolution would be here, maybe 30 meters, 15, 15 feet, maybe 15 feet, I would guess, maybe, maybe 30 feet, down to that image where you could probably almost see you know, a person if you blow it up far enough in seven years. That's the, uh, the, the march of technology, so to speak. Give you an idea of what happened after Corona. KH-6, which replaced the KH-4B, the last Corona system, was the first electro-optical system. Uh, that means that you don't have film coming out of space, that you basically beam down electrons and you use computers to analyze stuff. Uh, the resolution, get, they haven't declassified this stuff yet, but it's coming, uh, is around a meter, I would guess. Uh, we then moved on to the KH-9 in the mid-70s. This is the first near real-time spy satellite. Essentially, just after Carter took office, uh, they came in and you know, showed him images of what was going on in the Kremlin uh, that morning. And near real-time means that you can see the images nearly, certainly within technical effect, effective, time, effective time, resolution well under a meter. We then went to the KH-11s which is the current, as far as I understand, the, the current operational keyhole system. The resolution is on an order of a few centimeters. Nobody really knows. And now uh, there's rumors of a new system, but nobody is exactly sure what the capabilities are, obviously. Some other, another system that I, I'm kind of interested in is the lacrosse system, which is a high-resolution high synthetic aperture radar system, about a meter. Why would we want a radar system? See through the clouds. And at night, you can get, if you have resolution down to a meter with radar, you can see what's going on on an airfield at night through clouds. It doesn't matter. And Lacrosse is able to do that. Very powerful system. So that's the technical side of the military systems. Uh, move now to stuff I know a little bit better, which is the civilian systems. My dissertation was on Landsat, the policy history of Landsat. Uh, this, as I said, started in 1972 give you an idea, we were already in 1968 looking at the Pentagon at that level. This is what we had in the unclassified area in 1972 was the multispectral scanner they called the instrument, which had 80 meter resolution. They called it multispectral because it broke the light up through a prism and you can study uh, some very interesting properties of plants and soils that way if you break the light up. So this is what was going on in, uh, in mid-70s. The MSS lasted until the late 80s. That, that part of the program. But here we are on the civilian side with a 30 meter resolution or 80 meter resolution uh, um, on the Landsats 1 through 5 essentially. Um, different program, right? They weren't looking at detail, they were looking at resources so we didn't need the level of detail that, that is uh, needed by the people doing military stuff. Some neat pictures though, Boston Harbor in 86 at 80 meters and uh, Beijing in 76. Cities generally turn up blue in those images. Here's the next uh, uh, system that came out that was an improvement upon the multispectral scanner was the thematic mapper on Landsats 4 and 5, also on 6 which didn't go to orbit, and 7 which is in orbit now. Um, this is a 30 meter resolution system and here you have images uh, in true color which is essentially what your eye would see if you were looking down from space of the Poaz volcano in Costa Rica which I've been to so that's why I chose the image. And then also a 30 meter image of uh, Miami. So we're increasing in, 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 uh, in resolution but we're not heading towards this super high resolution stuff uh, that the military has for a number of reasons. They're more interested in resources. Let's see. Here's some Im recent images from Landsat 7 that I found pretty interesting. This is the 50 mile long super iceberg B-10A. Uh, it's in the Ant off Antarctica somewhere, floating northward. It's taken uh, last winter by Landsat 7, which has a 30 meter thematic mapper, a version of the thematic mapper, and a 15 meter panchromatic, which means black and white camera. Just to give you an idea, this scale here is one kilometer. These are basically up to a kilometer and bigger icebergs breaking off of this 50 mile long piece of ice. Many people suggest that this activity, which is fairly, uh, uh, um, hasn't really occurred at this degree, is evidence of global warming. That the ice sheets are breaking up and we're going to see these larger 
more dangerous icebergs floating north. I mean, this thing is easily to track. Ships don't go anywhere near it. But we have mile-long chunks being spread along behind it through the ocean that are very dangerous to shipping. I like that image. I thought it was kind of timely and neat. <clears throat> On to the commercial VHR systems, very high resolution systems, or spy satellites, as some people like to call them. Space imaging is the star of this show with their, with their bird Iconos 2 in orbit right now. Uh, I brought in uh, their sort of spokesperson for the workshop um, who, who displayed images for the first time uh, publicly from that satellite because uh, they hadn't had them out besides on the internet before. Uh, they are one of eight U.S. companies who have obtained licenses to launch one meter commercial systems since 92 when the laws were changed. They attempted to launch Iconos 1 in April and the satellite failed to reach orbit. They now have uh, Iconos 2 in orbit and here are some images from that satellite. There's the launch. It was a small uh, expendable launch vehicle. Um, it's called, gosh I can't remember the name of it, commercial system. So here's an example of image comparison. Here's a 10 meter system. This is uh, I believe San Francisco Airport, uh, 10 meter resolution, 5 meter resolution of the same thing. You're essentially looking at this area right here, and that's what happens when you get up to 1 meter. Pretty big difference. One thing that's, that's very different in, in these two systems, as you move down in resolution, or up as you, as you would like to say, uh, your data stream increases phenomenally, like unbelievable. The, the amount of data they have to transfer in a 1 meter image basically means that you do smaller areas. You do tiny little areas when you image at one meters, at one meter. Um, that's a big, big deal, moving all that information. Here I want to give you an example of a comparison between what the KH-4A was doing in 67, that's the Washington Monument, and the first publicly released image of Iconos 2 in, in, in October, uh, which also shows the Washington Monument. Difference, what's the difference? If you're following me, you know what the difference is. This is an image. This is like a photograph, right? You're going to hold it in your hand. This is all digital, 11-bit data. At the workshop, I can tell you, uh, when we talk about the workshop, there was a woman there who got some of the early data from space imaging. It was an image of San Francisco. The woman was jumping up and down. She just said, she does uh, a lot of image classification work, and she said, this 11-bit data is so powerful that we could, we could classify rooftop gardens in the shadow of the Transamer Transamerica building in San Francisco. They could, they could pull out the fact that there was foliage on the roofs of buildings in the shadow of the Transamerica. I mean, talking about levels of grayscale that I, I don't really understand in imagery, but she was very, very excited. She said, I hadn't been excited about this stuff until I got a hold of it. And she said, it's really, really powerful, really powerful. Here's some fun, ima fun images I asked you guys to identify. What are we looking at there? Right? That's Giza. Anybody know what that is over there? Right, Millennium Wheel in London. They were just erecting it. You can see the, the tugs out there uh, pulling it up with the guy wires. So, very interesting. That's, these are Iconos images blown up. Okay, give you an idea. I don't know how well you can read this. Uh, one of the persons presented at the workshop talked about all the systems online or being planned. Uh, essentially, the ones at the top are Landsat-like. That's medium resolution up to 30 meters or so. Um, the, the group at the top. In the middle here, we have high resolution uh, panchromatic and very near infrared, which is the Iconos type satellites. Um, more high resolution here. Down here, we're into hyperspectral and, and uh, radar systems. Just to give you an idea of all the countries involved and all the satellites that are planned to be launched uh, in the next few years. You can see the timeline at the top, obviously into 2000 now. Some Landsat stuff coming up. Lots of uh, commercial spy satellites essentially on the horizon. Uh, everybody from India to uh, Canada to West Indies space to, to uh, um, the Israelis have a system too. It isn't, I don't see listed there. Actually, it's under West India. Um, so just to give you an idea that it's going to be a pretty active uh, uh, area pretty quick-like. We have one bird now, but there's going to be a lot more. Um, because people think it's going to be profitable, and I tend to agree. So what I want to do now is switch over real quick and give you a little bit of the policy stuff. That's the technical side. Hopefully I can get back in there when I need to. What I do is look at the evolution of policy in this area and also the implications of these developments for political and social uh, things, including the environment, which is my area. I'm probably going to need to dim the lights again. One of the papers that you can pick up up here, basically this is the heart of the paper. 
which talks about how we got to where we are. How did we move from a, a, a place where uh, satellites, spy satellites, high resolution satellites were so protected that you couldn't talk about them without going to jail to an era, era now where if you have a credit card and access to the internet, you can download an image of anywhere in the world except for, does anybody know where you can't get an image of? You can get an image of Area 51 if you want. No. Israel. Israel has a blackout, and we're going to talk about that as a policy wrinkle. <clears throat> I'll run through this as quickly as I can so we can get through this, uh, this part. Essentially, U.S. remote sensing policy dates all the way back to 1955 when Eisenhower proposed his open skies principle. Anybody do diplomatic history? What was open skies? probably the most revolutionary or crazy thing that Eisenhower ever did. He walked in uh, to a summit with, uh, who was in power at that time? And he said, you know what? We would really like to know what's going on in, in the Soviet Union, but we can't. How about if, if we allow you guys to fly over our territory, will you allow us to fly over your territory? It'll be a good thing. And the guy said, you're nuts. Never going to happen. That was the beginning of the idea that we needed to know what was going on in a real sense. Uh, and o the Open Skies Doctrine, of course, was rejected, but uh, it was the beginning of, of what, we, what we have now as a, a policy for remote sensing policy. Basically, as I told you before, from 1960 to the present, the U.S. developed increasingly sophisticated secret space-based intelligent gathering capabilities and formally, in the open, promoted this Open Skies idea. However, informally, it fashioned a gentleman's agreement with the Soviet Union over satellite overflight. Originally, when the Soviets learned that Corona had worked, they said they were protesting diplomatically that this was not legal, they couldn't fly over with the satellite, blah, blah, blah. So what did they do? They built their own system. And as soon as they figured out how, how useful that system was, they shut up di diplomatically. And the U.S. was trying to, for a while, trying to figure out what was going on because they changed their stance so dramatically. And then we realized they had their own systems. So what we had was really a gentleman's agreement which said, I won't talk about your systems if you don't talk about my systems. And that lasted, believe it or not, all the way through the Cold War. Although there was some open discussion later on. 1972, we get the first commercial, si or a, a civilian system. It was a U.S. government, uh, basically a research satellite, Landsat 1. Uh, after a few launches of that bird, uh, birds in that order, in that series, we uh, uh, had a, a policy sort of discussion about resolution. In 1978 and 79, Carter sets a 10 meter resolution restriction on U.S. satellites. He did that because uh, 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 the French were talking about launching a system of their own and going below 10 meters. People, when they were talking about building the new thematic mapper on the Landsat series, wanted higher resolution, and he said, well. Okay, higher is okay, but we need to have a limit. And the limit he set was 10 meters in 1978, 79. 1982, we get uh, Landsat 4 launch, which had the thematic mapper 30 meters. We weren't pushing the 10 meter barrier, but we were definitely moving up. Uh, and also in 1980, we had the election of Ronald Reagan, who came in. Does anybody know what Reagan did with Landsat? It's kind of arcane, I understand. He privatized it. He basically said, we spent some odd hundreds of millions on this program. Uh, I'm into reducing uh, certain costs in the government besides the military. Therefore, I'm going to make it private. And he tried to make it private. And that was the 1984 Landsat law. Didn't really work out. Eventually, it was taken back into the government in the early 90s. Um, but that was another major change. They made it truly commercial. They also passed a segment in that law which said, if a private company wants to launch a satellite, they can, but they have to talk to the government. They have to get a license to do that. Um, and that was another significant part of the process to get us toward commercial spy satellites in 1984. 86 and 87, we had the launch of Spot 1, which was a uh, French satellite down to 10 meters. Uh, they were already talking about going down to 5 meters at that point. And so in 1988, basically a competition internationally, Reagan uh, did a secret national space policy directive which removed the 10 meter restriction set on by uh, Carter and uh, didn't really set a limit but just said we'll talk about it. But we don't want to handicap US companies vis-a-vis -vis the French therefore we're going to reduce, we're going to lose our restriction. And I'll move through this a little quicker. Uh, 89-90 we have the largest political shock in the history of, in human history, the end of the Cold War I would suggest. Uh, as, as far as global, global importance. Um, that changed 
things within the security establishment which, which had been basically holding on to this technology. I mean, they were venomous about keeping this secret. Venomous. Literally, you would go to jail if it was mentioned. The name Corona was mentioned, you could go to jail, for instance. Um, they started loosening up a little bit for a number of reasons. Basically, the Cold War was over. They started thinking about their jobs and thinking, well, maybe if we use it for other things besides secret things, it'll be around a little longer. Those kinds of things. Another major shock from the outside was the Gulf War. What happened in the Gulf War? For the first time, because of the, the loosening of restrictions on, on imagery, the U.S. military shared its data with the rest of the world, its spy satellite data in that war for the very first time. And our allies were amazed. They could not believe the information we could extract, how timely the information was. They were literally floored. They had no idea that, that this capability existed. Some of them did, but for the most part they didn't. And that led, believe it or not, to this ramp up of, of high resolution systems around the world. Uh, the French now have a Helio system at two meters. The Israelis have a system at around two meters. Um, and essentially it's because they saw what we could do. They saw what we could do. Mid-1991, according to my research, a memo was written in the CIA, which was kind of very interesting, or NRO. Uh, this memo said, look, things are going on in the world. There's a lot of spy satellite activity being ramped up around the world. Uh, and the US, it's in the U.S. interest to promote a U.S. company to fly the first commercial system. And it's in the U.S. interest because if it's in the U.S., we can control it. If the first system goes up and it's French, and they corner the market and drive out any other competitors, say a U.S. competitor, we have no control over that, that company. So the security people are thinking way in advance. They're thinking 10 years in advance. What's it going to be like in 1999? And they say, we want an American company with a bird up first, and we want some control. And that's what they got. We'll talk about that when we get to the policies. Uh, we had, as I said, in 1992, the Land Remote Sensing Commercialization Act, which took, uh, basically brought Landsat back into the, uh, to the uh, government sphere after a failed attempt to commercialize it. It just wasn't, the resolution wasn't good enough to drive the market and it failed. Um, some more changes there. Finally, as we, and in, in that law, we had uh, another part that talked, another piece that talked about the commercial or the, the licensing of commercial systems, which made it much easier to do that. And all of a sudden, in late 92, as Bush is exiting his, his office, they get the first uh, application and it's approved within a few months, a few weeks, for Earthwatch's three-meter observation satellite. That was the first approval of a commercial spy satellite. Um, and you, I can, you can kind of see how that all came about as a result of these changes. What happens next? The next thing that happens is we okay a system at three meters when Bush is on the way out. Clinton comes into office. All of a sudden, Lockheed Martin and some other people, Raytheon and some others, propose a one-meter system. All of a sudden, Clinton's like, okay, three meters is all right, but one meter really represents a quantum leap in the amount of information you can gather from an image. Therefore, we're going to talk about this again. They brought everybody back together, the military, the Department of State, all these people back into closed room discussions, and they said, what are we going to do? We have a one meter application for a system at one meters. We have an application for a system at one meters. And they eventually, in March, issued Directive 23, Presidential Decision Directive, which uh, said, okay, no resolution restrictions. You can build a system at whatever level you think you, you need to. We're not going to say no. We have to okay that through our licensing procedure, but there's no restrictions. Uh, they also said, we will allow turnkey systems to be sold internationally. We'll discuss it. They haven't allowed it yet. They say, we'll discuss it. Turnkey means somebody else has control over it, the Saudis or whoever wants to buy it. And I could probably run through some more of this. Uh, some interesting wrinkles. Eyeglass Saudi affair in 94-95, so we get an okay for a three meter and a, and a one meter system. Other companies are jumping on board too. Uh, all of a sudden, Eyeglass, which is another company involved in this area, has an agreement with Saudi Arabia to build a ground station in Saudi Arabia. So they can downlink their data from the satellite themselves. This is another company trying to get involved. Oh, Israeli lobby went nuts. They were like, we are not going to allow our, our territory to be imaged by a system that downloads into the Mideast. We're not going to do it. That's just, it's just too scary for us militarily, a spy system. Uh, and so what did they do? They went to the U.S. government, and after all this time when the U.S. government was promoting the legality of overflight and collecting data over any place in the world, they blacked themselves out. 
There is a rule that says the U.S. satellites cannot image Israel at any resolution greater than what's com otherwise commercially available. The only country in the world with this proviso is Israel. We'll talk about that under policy wrinkles. <clears throat> Other things that went on, U.S. Uh, export control of satellite technology was moved from state to commerce, which was an indication by to many people that we were loosening further. It's not the State Department of State deciding now, it's the Department of Commerce, which is probably going to be much more inclined to let the, the stuff go because they're into business and promoting U.S. interests economically. What else happened? Um, basically, it was 96 when they got the, the authorization bill that limited collection of data in Israel. 97, we get the first launch attempt. It failed. Uh, What else? April, we had another launch attempt by, by Space Imaging, which failed. And finally, in September, we got a bird. So we are now in the era of spy satellites, and that's how we got there politically. Much, it's told much better in my paper, so if you want to know the, the, the ins and outs, you can read it there. Basically, it moves slowly over time. That's my conclusion. Uh, but we are there as things go today with a satellite in orbit. OK. Let's see if I can get this to work. There it is. Here's the current policy. There are no restrictions on resolution of commercial systems. Iconos uh, 2 is at 0.83 meters. That shot that you saw of the, of the Washington Monument is essentially uh, three, almost 3 quarters of a meter in, in, uh, in resolution. Basically, that means the smallest object that you can detect on the image, it's really related to pixel size, I believe. I don't know the details, is about uh, 2 feet across. Uh, all commercial systems must be licensed by the Department of Commerce, who consults with the Department of Defense and the Department of State. That means if you want to launch a high-resolution system, you've got to apply, with, go through all the hoops to the Department of Commerce, who then talks to defense and state and make sure there's no, no problems uh, in, in their camps. Um, it's a, not a very long process, I think. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to build up the, the application, but they're supposed to respond within, within 90 days. So it's a three-month three months process to get it okayed. Satellite companies can apply to provide turnkey systems to foreign operators. This has not happened yet. Uh, the applications are reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis, which is basically uh, political language for it's really hard to get. Um, and they haven't okayed any yet. It's pretty dangerous. That's what they, they think, to, to just turn them over. Of course, US companies who build satellites are very interested in doing this because they're worth a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, a system like this. And so they want them to go, but they haven't been able to yet. Commercial operators, this is interesting, must keep orbit and tasking records and make them available to the US government upon request. That means anybody who asks for an image anywhere in the Earth, the government should be able to know about it. They're going to know. By the end of this year, when they finish the, when they supply their, their report or whatever to the government or whenever they ask them to, uh, they'll know every person who bought an image and where they, where they bought it from, everyone. And they'll also know the orbit of the satellite. Why do they want to know that? Those people who know about Area 51, why would, they, why would the US government want to know the orbit of the satellite and also know if there are any changes to it? Anybody here been in the military? What do they do when a bird passes over when you're in exercise? You cover up. The US military needs to know when the satellite's passing overhead so they can cover up themselves. They're imageable. There's no place in the United States you can't image. You can image Area 51 if you want. They'd probably want to know who was buying that image, though, right away. <laughs> but you can. So they need to know where it is at all times so they can do their, their job to keep uh, US military secrets uh, under wraps. Uh, US government reserves the right to exercise, this is the biggie, shutter control during times when national security may be compromised. Believe it or not, uh, they were already in discussions about doing this during the Kosovo crisis when uh, the first Iconosburg was being launched. They were already in discussions uh, if it would have flown successfully to basically shut it down over Kosovo. Uh, and this is really where the, where the commercial people are upset because there is, a, there is a process for determining when national security is, is going to be maybe compromised, but it's not very opaque, and they're wondering, what? We can't, collect, we can't supply images to people who demand them, even though we have this, this system working. So it's kind of funny that way. This is where, this is where we're going to see a court case under the First Amendment, for example, sooner or later. The first time the government, I've seen the brief, 
they have it ready. Space Imaging has the brief ready. As soon as they exercise shutter control, they're going to file it with the with uh, whatever the court, uh, the appropriate court, and say this is a uh, infringement of First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom to collect information. The brief is ready to go. U.S. law prohibits providing images of Israel territory that are better than what is available through other commercial sources. This is the other piece. And uh, this is a strange one. This is a strange one because the U.S. has argued internationally uh, since 1955 that satellite overflight and image collection is legal. So why all of a sudden do we allow Israel to have the right not to be imaged? That's what people are asking. And they have it. It's in the law. It's already there. Wrinkles, which I've mentioned already to a certain point, is the Israeli blackout. Are other countries going to ask for it? What's going to happen then? You know, when, when uh, uh, who knows what other country would say? We don't want it to be imaged either. The companies are at a disadvantage. They're obviously very much against the blackout, but uh, there's not much we can do. There's also really kind of a chicken and egg thing going on here with respect to Israel. The Russians have a system called Spin2. Who's been on the terror server site? Anybody been on the terror server site? Okay, most of the images that you see, a lot of the images you see there are from Spin2, which is the Russian equivalent of Corona. It's a film return system. They launch at request and take images. Um, Spin2, it's called. Um, they can image down below a meter. But what they release publicly is about two meters. So what's going on here? The, the, we have a system that can image greater than one meter, but they're releasing the two. We cannot, we cannot image in Israel at greater than two meters because that's the greatest uh, resolution we can get out of, the, out, of the, out of the Soviet system. So they're all kind of playing this game. Who comes first? Who's going to drop down first? And it's, it's really kind of complicated and hard to figure out. Basically, right now, we can't image it in Israel at less than two meters, but what are the Russians going to do now that we're down to 0.83 everywhere else in the world? They could decide, well, let's drop our image down to a meter. And then the US could go, okay, well, they're down to a meter. Now we can image Israel down to a meter. So there's going to be a funny little piece working its way out here. Yeah. Is this American policy, or do you hire a French Nobody else has a system below a meter. The best French system is the Helios, which is still military. They don't release their images. The best, uh, the, the best imagery, uh, other commercial imagery, is the Spin 2 imagery from Russia. And it's really inconsistent. The people I talk to says, you get it from different sources, and it's sometimes two meters, sometimes five meters. It's just not a very good system. Basically, it reflects their technology. But uh, the best you can hope for, besides Okonos, is a two-meter spin to image at this point. Could American company give the French the blueprints for satellite and have them launch it? Yeah. The turnkey is allowed. It's not been allowed yet, but that's a I mean, you can see how this is all just going to evolve into, you know, a very high-resolution commercial system anywhere in the world, but it isn't there yet. It's the wrinkles kind of getting ironed out. Yeah. Uh, back to questions. Um, what keeps an American company just from, from just outsourcing some of its stuff and just open up its company in a different Export controls. That's the stuff the Department of Commerce handles. They watch that stuff. That's the question. It's not a U.S. system. No, uh, as far as I know, the first international. Hmm, this is very. This is another interesting wrinkle. The first international system less than a meter, non-U.S. system less than a meter, is going to be uh, a, a, an Israeli company. Believe it or not, they're in part partnership with a. It's a company called West India Space, uh, and it's an international consortium. But they are supposedly working towards a very low-resolution non-American system, very high-resolution. So. Yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, it's kind of, they're putting their fingers in the dam, but it's going to happen sooner or later. It's going to happen. It, is the military uh, telemetry encoded as it comes down, or can anybody build a receiver and get military images? Yeah, it's all coded. It's all, co it's all um, encrypted. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I doubt that they'd allow that to happen. Um, the other wrinkle is how is shutter control going to work? This is where the, the commercial people are kind of upset. They're, they're ready. They're ready to, to contest this as soon as it happens. Um, you know, who determines the national security is at stake? Obviously, it's Department of Commerce in, in, in consultation with DOD and, and Department of State, but they want to have that opaque. They want to know when things are going to get shut down, and it just hasn't happened yet, and they're waiting for it to happen so they can work out that policy wrinkle. What happens if the policy companies don't comply? 
Anybody know what the U.S. military is planning to do as a last resort? Yeah. Shoot it down. We have anti-satellite weapons that would take it out. And I guarantee you, if space imaging didn't play by the rules for long enough, they'd do that. They wouldn't hesitate a second. They'd take it right off. <clears throat> I don't know if they'd owe money for it, but they'd take it out. Uh, basically, it's fuzzy. Shuttle control is fuzzy. Just tell you a little bit about the workshop that we had here in November called Assessing the Implications of Very High Resolution Satellite Imagery, two-day national workshop. We brought in 11 presenters from academic, academia, industry, military, U.S. government, and foreign governments. Had a guy from uh, West European Imagery Center who uh, showed us some data that they've done on, over Kosovo uh, using SPIN2, using the Russian data. Uh, very, very interesting data set. He put it on my machine, but then he couldn't, he couldn't let me leave him. I couldn't leave his, his side. Uh, until after he took it off, all the stuff off. So it was kind of, it was still fairly, fairly sensitive material. Um, we talked about the legal, environmental, and military, political, economic, and moral implications of spy satellites. Uh, it was the first public display of Iconos imagery outside the internet. So that was here at Purdue. Uh, when I so first saw that uh, that image of the uh, of London in the in the in the wheel, I was pretty I was pretty taken. It was pretty. It was a really nice picture. Give you an idea of some of the highlights. Cass Green was the woman I said who went nuts about the 11-bit power in, in this 11-bit data. She was just beside herself. She just said, for people who do work like I do, imagery classification, this stuff is going to be outrageously valuable. Um, Sarge, Master Sergeant John Weber is part of the Air Force's red team. Uh, he, what they do is take off-the-shelf technology and information off the internet and show the military what they can expect a terrorist organization to be able to find out about it for instance. Uh, and so they're obviously buying Iconos data and using that to some degree off, with off-the-shelf technology to show the Air Force what they can expect a, an adversary to do. He liked the idea. He thought that it's going to make the U.S. stronger because basically with people like me doing my job, we'll know what our adversaries are able to do and we'll, we'll, we'll develop countermeasures. John Tuvert was the guy from uh, West European Center who talked about Kosovo. He had an, a map of Kosovo down to two meters. Bruce Marks talked about the potential use of the imagery. This is all in the report, by the way, for law enforcement. And basically, the, the one-liner is, you could have seen the white Bronco. <laughs> I mean, that's what the people in the, in the legal profession say. Yeah. Is all the data you see from the satellite's images, or do you get video? It's digital. You get it, you get it in digital form. Well, oh, it's not a video. No, it's, an, it's a snapshot. There's no video. I see your point. It's not, it's not motion. A guy named Christopher Simpson from American University talked about the fact that it isn't just what this stuff's going to be used for. There was a lot of cheerleading, cheerleading going on at the workshop. He said, what about what it's not used for? What about the organizations like Human Rights and, and uh, perhaps Environment where this stuff isn't really channeled into? It's used for other things. And so he was just careful to say, you know, there's, there's, uh, uh, it's not just what it's used for. It's what it's not going to be used for. It was kind of an interesting take on things. Jeannie Eyes-Bouchardi from the UN spoke about uh, how they're going to use it for refugee monitoring and camp planning. I mean, that's what they do, right? His organization, or the organization he works for, maps out huge refugee camps uh, with satellite imagery and helps them plan water and those sorts of things, how to find water and whatnot. And finally, Alan Margolis, a friend of mine from the EPA, reviewed the implications for privacy in the Fourth Amendment. And his conclusion basically was the resolution isn't good enough really to have serious privacy concerns, uh, although, you know, you could pick out somebody's pot plants in their backyard if they had enough of them. Um, and is that legal? The law says it is. The law says you can use remote uh, sensing to, 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 to locate illegal activity and then bust people based on that information. Um, but that's kind of, in fact, the two cases that push this envelope the best are, are dope, dope growing cases, so that's why I went there. To end up, give you some really pretty images from Iconos. These guys sent them to me. There's the Hollywood Hills. You can see the sign. <laughs> pretty amazing. And uh, Hoover Dam. I don't know. I, I, haven't, I haven't had a chance to get this imagery and use it in a really nice image processing software, but I have a feeling that uh, it's going to be a pretty, pretty cool thing. I would suggest people who have, uh, perhaps in this point in their career, early enough in their career, if you're looking for a job, and you do imagery analysis, and you learn how to analyze this data, you will be able to go anywhere in the world. 
Every government in the world is going to want people who know how to analyze this stuff. Every company, sooner or later, large corporations are going to have people looking at this stuff. So if you're thinking about a career uh, in imagery analysis, I would point you in this direction. Basically, high-resolution digital photogrammetry, if you can find a place to study it. Yeah? Does Iconos have a stereoscopic capability? No. It's not stereoscopic yet. Somebody will launch one, though, sooner or later. That's what Corona had. Corona had a, a fore-and-aft camera that gave you stereo. So I can answer questions if anybody has any about commercial spy satellites. That's the long and the short. There's quite a bit more information up here if you're interested. Yeah? Where do you, uh, what do you expect the uh, government is now using for their everyday spy satellite I mean, I've heard all kinds of different things, but I've heard it's down to a few centimeters, which I would guess somewhere between 10 and 5 centimeters. It could be. I know that they have a new system that nobody talks about, and that may be what you're re relating to. I, I'm pretty sure that the the KH-11s are around eight eight centimeters, seven to eight centimeters. So you can't quite read newspaper from space, but you could probably see somebody reading the newspaper. <laughs> One of the images I didn't get a chance to pull down that I wanted to was from the, from the very beginning, uh, I, uh, uh, space imaging is saying it's not good enough to see people. It's not good enough to see people. The first thing they did, in international, the first international image that they released was of, of uh, Tiananmen Square. And you could see the people lined up to go into the mausoleum. And they were like, see? We didn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> this is really, really good data. Yeah. I don't know what, you mean, what you're asking. I'm, I didn't follow you. Oh, oh, I see. Um, hmm. I, one, thing, one thing is the, the largest, uh, in fact, the only reason that space imaging got a business plan sold to the finance community was the fact that NEMA, a National Imagery and Mapping Agency, which is the ma mapping agency of the US military, uh, agreed to buy about a billion dollars a year worth of their data. So, they're using it. Why would the government want to use it when you think they already have? Different characteristics. Different characteristics. Maybe maybe it's difficult. To, uh, well, there's restrictions, for instance, on the secret data that they can't apply to certain applications, so they won't want an open source. And now that it's available, they can just purchase it as they need it. I mean, if you build a map from you know KH11 imagery, you're going to be in a sense telegraphing your abilities to. If, if it's in the open. And some of the NEMA stuff is in the open. A lot of it's classified, but some of it's in the open. Anything else? <clears throat> well, I enjoyed the time with you. And uh, if you want to read a little bit more about what's going on, it's down here. Very exciting area.